This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are here live every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific, and we are replayed throughout the week. And of course, you can always find us on demand on the SiriusXM app. And that's what I recommend. Yes. I, you know, it, we talked about this, you know, how long have we been doing this? Over five years? Yeah, over five years. And... I, I do. I use the app all the time. Yeah. I love the SiriusXM yeah. app. I think it's actually really easy to use. It's very easy. I mean, I do sort of like listen to our show to be like, how bad did I sound? <laughs> but in general, um, you know, I love listening to other channels and yeah. and listening to music. I haven't said this in a while. It's one. That's usually what I, I'm listening to. Oh. <laughs> I'm such a pop person, um, and I didn't give I didn't give Danielle, our sound engineer, any suggestions for our intro or outro music. So maybe I'll be sure to do that in the break. Exactly, exactly. But Cheryl, here on campus, it's graduation season. I know, I know. It's it's a great time. I was I was here on campus uh, leading a panel um, for social impact alumni and. It's just great to see the multi-generational stuff. You see, you know, grandparents and young kids and babies and couples who met at Penn. It's just, you know, it's it's just really... Babies that met at Penn? <laughs> yeah, they were they were sort of matched early. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes that happens. I know. Um, but yeah, it's just full of festivities and music. And, and I, I, I told my panel that it seems that either we have torrential rain or absolutely beautiful weather. And it was gorgeous it this was weekend. It was gorgeous this weekend. Love it. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Great time to be in Philadelphia. Great time to be alive. Actually, it's kind of a tough time to be alive sometimes. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, but we also, I'm, I'm just thinking about what it means to graduate. So we had in the headlines over the weekend here that, you know, uh, a billionaire decided to pay off student loan debt at Morehouse College yep. for that year's graduating yep. class, which is incredible. Um, and, but you know, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the you know? problem. No. But hey, if anyone's listening and wants to pay off my student loan debt, <laughs> I am not turning it down. Right. But, you know, it makes me think about what is it, you know, what do this year's graduating class or what, do, what does this year's graduation class face, you know, uh, economically, career prospects? And so um, that's a, just an interesting segue to talk about our first guest, right. who is Griffin Amdor, who is the director at Chicago Furniture Bank. Why is that a good segue? Because he actually graduated from Penn last year and was a, a winner of the president's innovation, no, engagement prize here at Penn last year. So we're going to get to talk to him about like what it meant to be an entrepreneur coming out of the university with significant resources, yeah, to be yeah, clear, yeah. but what it meant to maybe take maybe a non-traditional path that his classmates took. And that's so interesting for me because, I mean, I look, I was a philosophy major. It's not like we, we had any, you know, normal paths. We didn't go to businesses and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just always inspired by the amount of energy and entrepreneurial spirit we see in, in kids. They're willing to, I think, take the kind of risks that I I would never have been able to take. Well, and coming back to the student loan debt piece, yeah. I personally, it, you know, taking an entrepreneurial venture is, would be a real challenge for me. I would love to be able to do that potentially, but that's just not in the cards for me. So if you think about, you know... African-American men graduating from yeah. Morehouse who now aren't saddled with student loan debt, who knows? Maybe they'll go start businesses themselves. Yeah. We'll be able to talk a little bit more about that next week, too, because I think we're going to have someone on our show to oh, talk about Morehouse the implications of that. Oh, I Morehouse is going to follow that. that and sort of see what they do. It'd be fascinating. It'd be like an A-B experiment. What happened yeah, last year yeah, or this year or yeah. this year and next year? Yeah. 
It also sets up some interesting expectations. <laughs> um, maybe not, but I, I think that's interesting. But also, just to, to let our listeners know that we will also be joined by Professor Shane Jensen, a professor of statistics here at the Wharton School. Um, that might sound dry and boring, but oh, it's not. not. Um, Shane is also a, a co-host of Moneyball here on SiriusXM 132. And, um, you know, we're going to be able to dive into how statistics and big data are helping us identify what creates urban vibrancy, specifically here in Philadelphia, but really extrapolating what it can mean for really any community, right. big or small. Right. Um, and so, you know, be sure to stick with us to, to hear from Shane. He's super dynamic. Um, he's one of, I think, if you think about statistics professors, I think he gets very high ratings yes. from students. They yes. love taking his class. Yeah. Uh, and he's a really great guy. And the work he does is so interesting, and, and we've benefited from it in a lot of ways. And so that'll be a great thing to talk about. Absolutely. And if you want to join the conversation, shoot us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 or at Wharton Social. But let's get to Griffin and the Chicago Furniture Bank. Uh, the Chicago Furniture Bank is a 501c3 nonprofit that collects donations of gently used furniture and household goods and distributes them to families and individuals transitioning into supportive housing. Griffin, welcome to Dollars and Change. Hi, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. We're delighted. Yeah, do you remember what you were doing this time last year? Um, I believe a year ago from today I was uh, graduating from Penn. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know... An amazing experience. Had all my family there supporting me, so that was great. Absolutely. So, um, you did start the idea, of course, of the Chicago Furniture Bank while you were here at Penn as an undergrad. But uh, just curious, you know, what was the impetus, and you know, what really drove you to think about, you know, applying for the engagement prize and starting this business? So, I knew about the engagement prize from my uh, business business ethics class I took during my sophomore year, and, and I knew it was this, you know, once, you know, not. Any other university offers this type of um, competition for its students, and I knew it was a really unique opportunity. Um, and was over at my grandpa's um, the summer going to my senior year, and was looking at sort of his antiques, and was talking to my dad about um, used furniture and how a lot of these items had a lot of value back when they were purchased, but now are basically worthless. And sort of stumbled, um, you know, and then we were discussing how people could still use um, many of these things, but. Um, you know, you just had to get it to them. So are we talking about like Cubs and White Sox memorabilia, or <laughs> hey, I'm a Chicago girl. I, that's why I say that, Cheryl. <laughs> um, no, I was, um, I was, I was looking at his uh, antique china. Uh-huh. So you know, we were talking about how you know people used to have two sets of china, and one people would you know save uh, a week's worth of salary or, or more so to you know buy this fancy china, and now how you know you can't. No one wants. No one wants China. Well, and that's the interesting point, because I've read a lot of uh, articles, no real studies, but articles saying that for a lot of millennials and people who would be the ones who would inherit the big China cabinet and the other pieces of China and the formal flatware, they're like, that's not my life, mom. You know, I, I don't I don't have room for it. And that's not how I live. So I might be unique because I, you know, was like, "Ooh, I want that someday. But I literally have like a silver tea set and china uh-huh. in a like plastic tub in my basement right now. <laughs> right, it's right. not being used. It's not displayed. It's just sitting there. Yeah. So we're we're talking about some of those types of things, Griffin. Um, but what? So so that was sort of that sparked something. Tell us more about your story. Yeah. So you know, it, I started looking at the secondary market for used furniture and noticed there wasn't much monetary value, but there's still you know um, usefulness for the products. And came across the idea of a furniture bank. Um, so there's other furniture banks throughout the country. In North America, there's about 80 in total, and um, you know saw that there wasn't one in the city of Chicago where I grew up. 
um, and then you know went to my partners James McPhail and Andrew Witherspoon um, during September of my senior year. I was like, hey, you know, um, you know, Penn offers this prize to students who you know want to start a nonprofit or social enterprise. Um, this could be a really unique opportunity. I think it's a good idea. They were totally on board right away, and then we, um, you know, spent the first couple months of our senior year um, writing a business plan and develop, developing partnerships with nonprofits and you know um, furniture companies in Chicago, moving companies and such, um, in order to build you know a strong application. So, you know, a lot of our listeners may be parents who have children who are graduating and thinking about, you know, what they're going to be doing. Because as a parent, you you worry about your kids. You want them being safe and secure and, and have healthy and wealthy, possibly. How did how did you sort of make the decision to do a more entrepreneurial path rather than a safer path and perhaps more lucrative? Especially compared to your other peers, pen peers yeah. I'm sure. Um, so, you know, Penn being the amazing institution it is offers, you know, a significant amount of seed funding to start, um, you know, to start this organization. So, you know, we didn't need to take out loans in order to, you know, start up, um, you know, if we won this prize, which was, you know, then we'd have some money to sort of kickstart us and get us going. Um, so, you know, we thought this was a good enough idea to sort of take that risk and, you know, Penn gives you that cushion and sort of that extra, um, sort of, you know, credibility. Uh, that, you know, this is a, a good idea and it has this strong endorsement from the university. Um, so that's why we thought, you know, it was um, it was totally worth going for the prize and we were lucky enough to win. So a parent shouldn't worry if their their graduating child decides to be entrepreneur rather than go to corporate America. Well, you know, um, it, we have I'm, I'm 23 years old. We have our whole lives to sort of work um, and, earn, and earn money. Um, you know, I think right now at this point in my life, I, I can take a little bit more of a risk. And my partners also felt the same way, um, just in terms of, you know, just in jobs in general. People are changing jobs more often than ever Absolutely. before. And I think, you know, a lot of companies would sort of appreciate this sort of um, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, believing in the idea and going for it. All right. So you talked about partnerships. You talked about uh, your grandpa's, you know, China. China. What What is a furniture bank? And like, really, what are you doing there? Yeah, so a furniture bank is just the intermediary between people who have extra furniture and those without. Um, so we go around Chicago on the area in our in our two trucks, and we're picking up um, donated furniture from people generally downsizing or moving, and bringing it back to our warehouse. Um, you know, it started off with just a six thousand square foot warehouse and a U-Haul truck, and me and my two partners would go around Chicago picking up couches and sort of cold calling along the way. So two of us would be on the truck, and one of us would um, be back at the warehouse showing around clients. Um, you know, giving away the furniture. Um, and, um, you know, it's grown really quickly. So basically what we do is we bring in, we have 160 nonprofit partners. Um, they bring in, the caseworkers bring in their clients and they hand pick a personalized uh, furniture package. Mm. So in our 5,000 square foot showroom, we have 15 of each items. You know, so you have your couches, your armchairs, your dressers, your desk, your coffee tables, your kitchen tables, chairs, and all that. And for $50, um, we furnish a, a full home for our 160 nonprofit partners. So our partners uh, find housing for the formerly homeless, victims of domestic violence, uh, mentally and physically disabled, or, and people who just face poverty in general. Um, so, you know, we're an incredible resource to our nonprofit partners because beforehand people would um, you know, move into an empty home for an extended period of time or even indefinitely, and they wouldn't have the resources in order to furnish their home. And, uh, you know, oftentimes people would you know, have spend their limited income on buying beds and other furniture in order to, you know, furnish their home and make a, a 
know, their, their house, an actual home that right. they, they feel you know, that they want to go home to. And that would, you know, decrease their stability and you know, oftentimes lead to, you know, people leaving their home and going back to homelessness. And I would imagine that you are finding great recept- uh, reception from people who are downsizing, right? Because it's sort of like I could try to give it to my kids. I could give it to a consignment shop or, you know, a secondhand store. But if I donate to you, then, you know, I, I know that it's really going to be used and needed. So I think that, and it doesn't go into the landfill, which is great. I hope my mother-in-law is listening to this too. <laughs> we, we, we can't take your China cabinet, Kathy, but you can certainly give it to a furniture bank. Yeah, no, we, we found that our donors are you know really thankful for our service because, you know, we're going to the home and actually removing the unwanted furniture. Um, you know, a lot of the times people think that their stuff is worth more than it actually yeah. is. You know, they, you know, they do a little bit of research and they might try an estate sale or something and they'll have you know, three quarters of a house left and they're moving out in a week. So they don't really know what to do with it. Um, so that's where we come in. We come pretty quickly and we do ask for a suggested donation generally for our service. Um, mm. So, you know, people understand that it costs money to you know, send a truck and two guys to remove the stuff. Um, so, they're, you know, they're willing to pay generally 100 to $200 to, you know, make sure their stuff's going into, uh, you know, homes that, you know, will have use for it. Nice. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn with Cheryl Kuhlman, and we are speaking with Griffin Amder, who is the director at the Chicago Furniture Bank. And so, Griffin, um, you know, thinking about downsizing, as, as Cheryl mentioned, but also this uh, Marie Kondo craze and, <laughs> and KonMari-ing, um, I think is what you, what you say, KonMari. Um, you know, have you seen an uptick in the last kind of six to 12 months even? I mean, I guess you are, you've only been in business for about that long, but, you know, the timing is right for this Seems too. Right. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's a lot of waste out there with furniture. Uh, furniture is the least recycled household good. About 10 million tons goes to landfills every year. So there's almost, almost like an endless amount of furniture looking to be donated, whether it's from corporate partnerships or people downsizing. You know, we currently get around 15 pickup requests per day for people looking to give us furniture. Oh, that's a lot. And we, uh, and, you know, they, they know that we ask for the suggested donation and, you know, we just can't get to all, all the pickup requests. And then we've also been found that there's sort of an endless demand for our service as well. So we have 160 nonprofit partnerships. We furnish around seven homes a day. Um, and those seven appointment slots are booked about a month in advance. Um, so there's like a really big need for this service, both from people downsizing as well as, um, you know, people who need the furniture. So uh, and we just found that having a consolidated place um, where, you know, you can just specialize in this one service has been really useful to a lot of different parties. Um, you know, beforehand, nonprofits, the best caseworkers would sort of, you know, solicit their personal networks in order to get one-off donations of items, furniture. But, um, you know, that's, you know, it takes a lot of time. And these social service agencies are already constrained on resources um, and just, you know, can't offer that type of specialized attention a lot of the time. Yeah, um, there's a great value in being able to pick your own furniture rather than just accept whatever happens to come your way. Right. And and I'm also curious around what you've learned as sort of a young entrepreneur about managing such a multifaceted business. There's this intake, there's this distribution, and you were just talking about, you know, maybe demand both in terms of what you can pick up as well as what you can distribute outstrips your current capacity. So how do you think about scale and what are some of the other lessons you've learned so far in your first year? Yeah. So, you know, scaling sustainably is definitely something that we constantly are you know, measuring, me and my, my two partners, um, you know, because we see on a daily basic basis, um, every day, you know, the appreciation our clients have for this, for this service. 
you know, having our clients be able to handpick their furnishing package right. while they're beginning this new chapter of their lives, you know, moving out of a shelter into their own home is a really, you know, positive experience for them. And they're really thankful for this service because, you know, the, the, this is the first time they've been really given choice in a while. Um, so, you know, we want to help as many people as possible, but being able to do so, you know, where we can keep the lights on and not run out of money is, is crucial. So currently, you know, we're covering around 50% of our costs right now. The other 50% we have to fundraise. Um, we're hoping that in the future we can sort of spin off into another social enterprise type business in order to cover a large percent of our operating costs. Um, but, you know, managing the growth in a, in a reasonable way has, has been challenging. And also, you know, um, just fundraising in general is difficult to, um, reaching out to people, asking for money, trying to get them to believe in your mission and see the good you're creating, um, you know, has been something that definitely has been a learning curve for me. Um, so, you know, currently right now we have 17 full-time employees um, who come primarily from workforce, uh, nonprofit workforce development agencies. So our employees were either, you know, homeless, faced poverty, uh, been in jail or in gangs. Um, so because we really feel like it's important to hire from the same communities that we serve in order to make this full circle social mission. Um, and you, you know, just being, um, yeah, so that, so that's, so that's sort of what we're doing right now and sort of our, you know, what I've learned so far. So how many people do you hire? So we have 17, uh, full-time staff right now. And I, you know, decent size. Yeah. I'm curious if you, um, when you, you know, when you were building the business or even since if you've looked at other models that aren't a one for one, but sort of maybe where you took inspiration and something that comes to mind is sort of like the Habitat for Humanity restores mm-hmm, or something like mm-hmm. that. How did you look uh, across either the competitive landscape or, you know, your landscape for uh, for inspiration? Yeah. So what we found is that other nonprofits like Habitat, like the Salvation Army, um, have been really you know open to us. Um, they want to help us. They understand that we're providing the service, uh, you know, directly to the clients. Um, and, uh, you know, there's way too much donation of stuff to go around. So we've been lucky creating partnerships with those organizations and how we sort of fit is, you know, we don't resell the items. We give it directly to the clients in need. Um, and we also come pretty quick. So we generally, you know, book our routes about three to four business days out. So, um, you know, we might ask for a suggested donation, um, which about 90% of our furniture donors pay. Um, but, uh, you know, people like that we come quick that we, you know, are very responsive and then we give it directly to the client. So, you know, we aren't, we, we, yeah, so that's that's sort of where we fit in, in the landscape. So the payment you get from um, the people donating the furniture, you count that as part of the earned revenue, not as the kind of philanthropy? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. No, no, I just wanted to, because I think that that's, you know, that's important. People are always trying to figure out what percentage of, of earned revenue can I make? And if you're getting paid for your business, it certainly counts within that. Yeah, so, you know, um, like junk removal services is sort of someone that, you know, before us, people, you know, our donors would go to to get rid of their stuff, and they charge up to $1,000 per truckload. Um, You know, they come immediately, but their stuff's going to the garbage. Uh, So, you know, we come, we take a lot of the stuff because, you know, most of the stuff is still useful, um, and, you know, we ask for significantly less suggested donation. And you just take furniture, right, Not, not Grandpa's China? Yeah, so we also take houseware. So we take kitchenware okay. items, small okay. appliances, pots, pans, plates. Um, so the things that help you furnish a house, yeah. Yeah. When you think about um, your journey from student to entrepreneur in a very short amount of time, a very fast amount of time, um, would you recommend it to others? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned that this was sort of like 
a low risk opportunity. You know, at this stage of your life, you can, it's not low risk. You can take the risk. Sorry. Um, you know, that resonates in some senses, but also might be a really unique perspective. So how did you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I I think if you have a good idea, you got to go for it and you believe, you actually believe in what you're doing is, you know, for a purpose and then you have to, you know, go with, with, with your gut, um, yeah. So, sorry. What was the second half of your question? Well, I just meant, you know, if you were if you were advising other students who are graduating right now, I think maybe this is a better way of putting it. You know, if if you're advising students who are graduating right now, or to Cheryl's point, like, hey, mom and dad, like, I I'm going to go do this, do this. What would you tell them to to do? Yeah. So you really have to make partnerships. Um, you know, you have to have other companies, existing organizations, believe in what you're doing and, and sort of endorse that your service will create value to them, and they, you know, they'll they'll partner or sign up for whatever you're, you're promoting. Um, and then, you know, in terms of like what you learn, like I'm learning on a daily basis, we're just trying to figure out the problems as, as they arise. So you just have it's a completely, you know, unique opportunity where you're constantly learning while you're doing, and you're, you're actually doing on the ground real work. Um, and you can see the immediate impact of your decisions. So that's the, you know, interesting learning experience as well. So even if you have something that, you know, fails, um, you know why it failed, and you you'll learn from it in the future. So I think you know if you that that's that's my thoughts on on going for it. And after, so as a young age. So what would you give? I'm, I'm thinking on the parent angle here, um, more reflective of my age than a graduate. What what, what would you have a, a young graduating entrepreneur tell her parents about why this is a good thing for her to do? Well, so I was lucky enough to you know be raised in a background where my parents were always promoted this sort of entrepreneurial spirit. And yeah, mine dad, never did. <laughs> my, my dad has started a, a bunch of his own companies and gotcha. um, ever since college, this is, well, this is what he's done. Um, but, you know, from a, from a parenting perspective, you know, if you gotta, you gotta believe in your kids and you gotta believe that what they're doing is going to make them the happiest. And if that, if they actually, you know, if it's, they want to, if it's what they want to do, they're going to be the most successful, um, you know, so People are only going to become successful if they, you know, are passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. So have faith and let them let them fly their own plane. Yeah. And what what is on the horizon for you all? You're sort of hitting a one year mark of graduation. You know, what excites you about some of the immediate future for the Chicago Furniture Bank? Yeah. So we're still growing really quick. We're looking to purchase a third truck actually this week. Um, we have a couple spinoff um, ideas we're looking to get into, possibly a junk removal service in order to. Um, you know, make our financials to to earn a larger percentage of our operating costs. Um, you know, we also have some other ideas we're working through. Sort of becoming like a distribution center for just corporate donations to you know redistribute goods to nonprofits. There's a lot of stuff being wasted right now, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, just having a centralized um, hub where you can you know distribute um, accordingly would be really beneficial. I feel like to you know large corporations as well as to the nonprofits, obviously. So those are the things we're working on right now. That's great. And so I guess we've, we've sort of, we've touched on this a couple of times, but just sort of in the, the last minute or so that we have here, um, any parting words of advice for budding entrepreneurs out there? Um, yeah, if you, if you, if you, you know, really do your research on your idea, um, sort of judge the landscape for competition and where you fit in at all. And then, you know, start approaching existing organizations, um, you know, with your idea and see if they have interest in it. Um, you know, creating partnerships is crucial to starting something and sort of having the support and sort of the, you know, other 
people to bounce ideas off of and, you know, share their knowledge with you. It's, it's crucial when starting up. And also, you know, a lot of it is just getting getting dirty and just sort of grinding it out. Um, you know, my partners, Andrew, James, and I were on the truck picking up all the furniture, doing all the manual labor for about, you know, the first four months. And, you know, so we've only been out of the truck since the beginning of 2018. So, you know, set goals for yourself, uh, make a timeline, and then, um, you know, really stick to it. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Griffin, Griffin Amdor, who is the director at Chicago Furniture Bank. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us. When we get back, we'll be talking to Shane Jensen, a professor of statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn with Cheryl Coleman on Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 